Is there a problem? Okay, okay. Uh, uh, praises be to our loving Abba for gathering us once again to study his words and his commands. Uh, we have uh, four questions lined up for this evening. Uh, let's go with the first one, but let's go ahead and look at the, uh, the question that was posed. Hello, Polka John. I hope you are you and your family are always safe. First question has to do with prayer. Second question has to do with the uh, the Gentiles already being fulfilled. Uh, question number three is about the Mount of Olives. And question number four is about signs of the, the, the Great Tribulation. And so these are the questions we're going to be asking. Let's go with question number one. Will there be no harm done if we join prayer, especially with our previous religious organization? This may happen in our case, given we reside in the same household, if occasions are being celebrated. So I'd like to first at, uh, rephrase the question in more general term and ask the question, can we participate in religious activities like prayer and worship with other religions? We need to first understand the book of Exodus 20 verse 3 is one of the first command of the Ten Commandments. It says, you shall have no other gods before me. So if we will participate, for example, in prayer or in worship with another religion, we need to ask ourselves, who is the God recognized by this other religion? Because we know there are many religions in the world today. There's the Islamic religion, Buddhist religion, Catholic religion. There's so many. So the question we need to ask ourselves first is, well, who is the God recognized by that religion? Because if they recognize a different God other than Yahuwah, Abba, and we participate in prayer with them, then in a way we are like recognizing another God besides Yahuwah, Abba. And so it would not be good for us to participate in prayer with other religions who recognize a different God. What else? The book of Isaiah 42, verse 8, Yahuwah says, I am Yahuwah, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. So when we participate in activities that give glory to other gods or to other people. Let us not participate in that as well, because Yahuwah makes it clear he will not give his glory to another. And so if there's a religion, they have a festivity, and they honor their gods, who is not Yahuwah, if we participate, we also end up giving glory to another god. So we need to be careful about those things, because we want to keep our loyalty to Yahuwah Abba, who said in the Ten Commandments that he is a jealous God. Now, going back to the question, however, uh, the context of the question appears to be um, participating in prayers together with our former or previous religious organization. Of course, we both believe in the same God. And so if we pray together with them, I do not see any harm in that. As a matter of fact, uh, if we are invited to participate in religious activities, for example, we are confronted with people who belong to different religious groups, and we don't want to be obnoxious, right? Because this is why there are people who avoid uh, certain types of religious people because they're so zealous and because of their zeal in serving their God, sometimes they can be obnoxious. We have to be careful with our attitude and maintain respect for other religions, okay? How do we do that? Corinthians 9, 21 to 23, when I am with the Gentiles who do not follow the Jewish law, I too live apart from that law so I can bring them to Christ. But I do not ignore the law of God. I obey the law of Christ. When I am with those who are weak, I share their weakness. For I want to bring the weak to Christ. Yes, I try to find common ground with everyone, doing everything I can to save some. I do everything to spread the good news and share in its blessings. So we, if we have an encounter with people who belong to a different religion, or let's say they have a different faith. What is the advice of the Apostle Paul? Let's try to find common ground with everyone. However, when we find common ground with everyone, 
Let us make sure it does not violate the law of God and the law of Christ. And so when we look for common ground, let's make sure it is approved by Yahuwah and Yahushua. And so let's go back to the question. If, for example, uh, those who belong to the religion from which we came from, and we are in a room because we have relatives who still belong in that religion, and we end up praying together, is what can we consider to be common ground? Well, we still believe in the same God. We just have the name of that God that they refuse. So that being the case, it would be appropriate to, be, to pray together with them. It's still considered common ground. However, if the religion that... Uh, is seeking our participation together with them in prayer, believes in a different God, then that's already breaking the law of God. And so we want to respect them, however, and so we don't blatantly reject them and say, your God is a false God. No, we have to be polite, right? We have to be civil. We must not be combative. We have to practice the truth with love and compassion. And so what we need to do so that we can build bridges and win people to Yahusha the Christ is to find common ground from common ground, build relationships so that we can have the opportunity to bring people to Yahusha. However, if we do belong to uh, the same household, for example, from those who come from the religious group we came from, but they do mock the name of Yahuwah Abba. That's a different story. There's a caution that Yahuwah God give, tells us about the book of Psalms 1, 1 to 2. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers. But his delight is in the law of Yahuwah and on his law he meditates day and night. You know, you can reject a a, a belief of faith without mocking it, right? For example, you know, I have friends who are members of the former religion who do not believe in the name of Yahuwah, right? But they don't mock it. But there are those who reject that belief. They don't believe that Yahuwah God has a name and that we should not have a part in it. But they mock the name. In other words, they make fun of the name. If that's the case, brethren, do not sit together with them. It's not a good idea. This is from the teaching of Yahuwah Abba. Okay, so that's question number one. Let's go to question number two. Now that we know that we are the descendants of the 10 tribes, does it also go to say that the fullness of the Gentiles has already been fulfilled? So we'll talk about the, the, uh, the plan of Yahuwah God for Israel and for the rest of humanity. And so what is the purpose of Yahuwah God in giving his son Yahusha? The book of John 3, 16 to 18. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He, he who believes in him is not condemned but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. So what is the main purpose of Yahuwah God in sending forth his son, our King Yahusha HaMashiach? It is for the salvation of everyone, of the people of the world, not just Israel not just a particular nation. We need to understand fully that everyone and anyone, regardless of race and bloodline, can receive salvation, can become a son and daughter of God. How so? By Yahushua, the king who died for our sins. So that's the main purpose of Yahuwah God in sending forth his son, Yahushua HaMashiach, to die for our sins, to die for the sins of the world. However, what also is another purpose? We know it is for the salvation of people, but there's also another reason why, another purpose. What is that? 
Let's read the book of John 11, 51 and 52. Now this he did not say on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Yahusha would die for the nation. In other words, he would die for the world, for the salvation of all human beings, okay? And not for that nation only, but also that he would gather together in one, the children of God who were scattered abroad. What also is a purpose of our King Yahusha for why he was sent forth into the world. It is also to fulfill the Abrahamic covenant to its completeness. And what is that? To bring, to bring together in one, the nation of Israel. Okay, so that's also a purpose of our king, Yahusha, because there's going to be a millennial kingdom. That's where Yahuwah God will be king of all through his son, King Yahusha HaMashiach. And so how would our King Yahusha do this? What will be the, the initial process? What does he want to do so that he can bring together into one a nation, the nation of Israel? Matthew 15, 24. But he answered and said, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And so when our King Yahusha was here, one of his purposes was to look for the sheep of Israel, the house of Judah, the house of Israel. They were to be united through our king, Yahusha HaMashiach. However, what happened when the opportunity for Yahusha to be king over Israel, over Judah, when that what opportunity came, what happened? The book of John 1, 11 to 13. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. In fact, what did they do to him? They put him to death, right? They, he was crucified because of them. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. And so when Israel rejected Yahusha as their king, the Abrahamic covenant would have to wait for its final fulfillment because they rejected the king who would bring them together to become one nation again. Because they rejected the king, what happened? The, the, uh, the calling, the salvation offered to the Israelites that are given to everyone else, to all who would receive him. So how would Israel and those who were not of Israel receive the salvation through our king, Yahusha? The book of John 15, 1 to 2, 5 to 6. I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that he bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. And so how can a person receive Yahusha, receive everlasting life through Yahusha? It's not enough simply to believe or to profess faith in him. They have to be branches attached to Yahusha as the vine. In other words, they need to be connected to Yahusha. They need to be grafted into Yahusha, who is the vine. Who is the vine dresser? Who is the one who planted him? Yahuwah, our God, our Father. And so for people to become the people of Yahuwah, they need to be grafted into Yahusha, who is divine. If you can be grafted in, you can also be cut off, right? And so those who have been grafted in, what must they do? They must abide. They must continue in their obedience of their Messiah. Because if they cease to obey, if they stop obedience, if they will not bear fruit, what's going to happen to them? The Bible says they can be cut off, they're withered, and they're thrown into the fire. And so we can see that what people need for them to be saved is to be added into the vine, who is our king, 
Yahusha. This is why when it comes to salvation, it's not about your bloodline. It's not about, wait a minute, are you Israel or not? Are you Filipino? Are you Asian? Are you Chinese? That's not important. What is important is, are you grafted into Yahushua, who is the vine planted by Yahuwah, our God? And so Yahuwah sent Yahushua so that whoever's grafted into him or added into his body, they are the ones who are going to be saved. However, to fulfill the Abrahamic covenant, it's also Yahuwah's will for people of Israel to be gathered together and to be brought into Yahushua, who is the king, to be grafted into Yahushua as the king of all. However, we know what happened. They rejected the Messiah. And so what does Apostle Paul say? Romans 11, 11 and 12. I say that, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. But through their fall to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now, if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness. And so because Israel rejected their Messiah. Now, when we say Israel rejected their Messiah, of course, there are some remnants who accepted Yahushua, right? Because there were some Jews who became members of the assembly of Yahushua in the first century. However, for the most part, they did reject Yahushua. So much so that after they, re they rejected Yahushua, uh, several, uh, about 40 years later, what happened to them? They were destroyed, right? And they were dispersed. And so the work of bringing together Israel, Israel would have to wait until a certain time passes. We'll talk about that later. So we know when Israel rejected the Messiah, they fell. And after they fell, opportunity was presented to who the gentiles the gentiles and so because the opportunity was presented to the gentiles who was called by yahushua christ to administer and to proclaim to them romans 11 13 and 15 for i speak to you gentiles inasmuch as i am an apostle to the gentiles i magnify my ministry if by means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them. For if they're being cast away, it's the reconciling of the world. What will their acceptance be but life from the dead? So who was called by our King Yahushua to proclaim the message to the Gentiles? It would be the Apostle Paul. This is why he became known as the Apostle to the Gentiles, because his main audience were the Gentiles or the people who were not Hebrew. And so salvation and its message were presented to them. This is why many of the converts, I'm not saying all, but many of the converts of the Apostle Paul were of the Gentiles. And so why did Apostle Paul say that they were cast away? Why were they cast away? Romans 11, 17 to 18. And if some of the branches were broken off and you being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them and with them became a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree. Do not boast against the branches. But if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. And so why were the, uh, the Israelites, Israel, why were they broken off. That's because they did not accept Yahusha. And so what replaced them? The Bible says you being a wild olive tree, right, were grafted in among them. Who were they? Who was like a wild olive tree. They were the Gentiles. And so they were grafted in. What does that mean? They were added to the vine who is our king, Yahushua. However, what is the warning of Apostle Paul? Do not boast. Why? Because you are just wild olive trees or wild branches that were grafted in to our King Yahushua. You do not support the root, but the root supports you. Who is the root? Our King Yahushua. So it says, do not boast. 
Do not boast. Now, why were the Israelites uh, broken off? What was it that caused them to be broken off? Let's read the book of Romans 11, 19 and 20. You will say then, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well said. Because of unbelief, they were broken off, and you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. So Apostle Paul says the Israelites were broken off, right, from the tree, from Yahusha, because they did not believe. And so even if Yahusha were sent for them because they had no faith, they were broken off. But those who had faith, like the Gentiles, they were grafted in. However, the Apostle Paul warns them, do not be haughty, do not boast. Why? Romans 11, 21 to 22. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God. On those who fell, severity. But toward you, goodness. If you continue in his goodness, otherwise you also will be cut off. Isn't this what our King Yahushua said? Who are those who will be cut off? Those who do not bear fruit. Who are those who will remain, who continue in his goodness? Those who abide in him. So our King Yahushua and Apostle Paul is telling us who are now with Yahushua as his branches. We need to continue abiding in our king. Otherwise, we would receive the severity of God, not the goodness of God. So we need to be careful and we need to become aware of what we're doing to make sure that we remain abiding in our king. Uh, does it mean, however, that because Yahusha has removed the Israelites, does it mean there is no hope for them? Let's keep reading Romans 11, 23 to 24. And they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, right, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. And so there is the work of the regrafting of Israel into Yahusha. Okay. Remember, they were cut off because of their unbelief. But Apostle Paul's telling us, because he knows prophecy. Apostle Paul studied the law. He studied the Old Testament. He studied the prophets. And in the prophets of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, so on, Hosea, Apostle Paul knows that there's going to be a regrafting of the remnants of Israel. Israel, again, will be grafted into Yahusha. For if you were cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? And so, according to Apostle Paul, if the Gentiles were easily grafted, right, even though they're considered wild olive trees compared to what was already planted by Yahuwah, how much more the Israelites. And so it would be an easy thing for Yahuwah God to do to regraft his people, the descendants of Abraham, into Yahusha. But the question is, when will he do that? Right? When will this take place? This regrafting of Israel into Yahusha HaMashiach. Let's read Romans 11, 25 to 27. For I do... I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery. And so this is the mystery. And I want you to keep this in mind. Because when we study the book of Revelation, we're going to tie all of this together. Because in Revelation, when we study the seals of Revelation, it speaks about the work of the mystery. The mystery of Yahuwah's work and Yahusha's work about the Gentiles. And we find, the, we find it here. There's this mystery that Apostle Paul's talking about. Okay, do not be ignorant. And so you need to remember this. And so when we study Revelation, I'll go back to Romans 11, 25 to 27 to connect everything. But for now, I want you to understand, this is a great mystery that we need to put in our mind. Do not be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion. That the blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has 
come in. And so all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. And so Apostle Paul tells us, yes, there's going to be a regrafting of Israel, right? But this will take place when? After the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So right now, ever since the first century, up until now, there's this reaping of the Gentiles. Once the major reaping of the Gentiles has completed, what will Yahuwah God do next? He will now turn his attention to who? Israel. So there's going to be a regrafting of Israel in the end times. Not in the first century. The first century, Israel got the opportunity, but they rejected it. But they will get another opportunity, right? Remember, Yahuwah God reached his hand the first time. He will reach his hand the first. He reached his hand the first time in the first century. But they rejected our King Yahushua. He will reach out again with his hand to bring together his people Israel, right? After the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. When was that fulfilled? Isaiah 41, 8 to 9. But to Israel are my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the descendants of Abraham, my friend, you whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest regions and said to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and have not cast you away. And so when will this regrafting to Yahushua of the Israelites begin to take place at a time called Enzav, the earth. Where will it begin? From the farthest regions. And so by this time called ends of the earth, the harvest for the Gentiles has already been full. It doesn't mean there's no more Gentiles we're going to be saved. That's not what we're saying. But the time that was allotted to them has reached it's full. In other words, Yahuwah will now focus his attention to bringing together those who are of Israel. Okay? And so this will take place during a time called ends of the earth, beginning in a place from the, from the farthest regions. Where was this first fulfilled? Isaiah 43, 5 to 6. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your descendants from the east. And gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up. And to the south, do not keep them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. So when will this take place? A time called ends of the earth. Where will it begin? In the far east. The islands of the sea. We studied this before in our previous uh, Bible History Project episodes. And so who would be the instrument to proclaim the words of God about Mashiach so that people can return to him, those who belong to Israel? The instrument would be Brother Felix Manalo, who began to preach the gospel and pointed people to Yahusha. This is why we believe that Brother Felix Manalo is Hebrew in his, uh, he, he has a, uh, in, in his, he's a Hebrew descendant. He's a descendant of Abraham because we know that the 10 tribes of Israel, after the captivity, many of them migrated to Ophir, the islands of the sea. And so Brother Felix Manalo and those who were in Ophir during this time, they too were called or brought together to become people of Yahusha. However, like what we said, the point is not about elevating your bloodline, okay? It's not the point. The point is turning to who? To Yahusha, because he's the Savior. Because even if you are of the blood descendant of Abraham, but you reject Messiah, guess what? You're not going to be saved. We need to accept and be grafted into Messiah. That's the whole point. Why are we studying all about Israel? Why are we studying then about Ophir? Because we want to follow the work of God. We want to pinpoint where Yahuwah is working at and where he's working toward so that we can participate in Yahuwah's work. That's the whole point 
of why we're studying all about the prophecies in Isaiah 43, 5 to 6. Not to say that those who are of Hebrew bloodline are greater than those who do not have the Hebrew bloodline. No. The point is we want to follow where God is leading. We want to follow where he's working at so that we can participate with him in his work. And so what further proves that this time in Isaiah 43, 5 to 6, the ends of the earth, that represents the regrafting of Israel to Mashiach. Well, let's read Revelation 7, 2 down to 4. Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. And if you keep reading the passage, it even tells you from which tribes they would come from. And so we see here the connection between the work of Brother Felix Manalo, the angel ascending from the east, and also the fruit of his work, the grafting back in of Israel into Mashiach or into Yahushua. And so the work of regrafting Israel is taking place right now. As a matter of fact, it took place when Brother Felix Manalo began to preach in the Philippine archipelago back in 1914. And that work of regrafting of Israel continues, as a matter of fact, in the work of Messiah today. How many will actually end up receiving the promised reward? Let's read Isaiah 10, 20 to 22. Now in that day, the remnant of Israel and those of the house of Jacob have escaped. will never again rely on the one who struck them. Want to pause there for a while? It's kind of funny. The Bible mentioned in this prophecy, Israel, right? When Yahuwah God began to gather the descendants of Abraham, the descendants of Israel, physical descendants of Abraham in the islands of the sea in 1914. Bible mentions the one who struck them. Something's going to happen. And the Bible says, never again will they rely on the one who struck them. So before they were relying on the one who struck them. But after this, they will no longer rely on the one who struck them. Instead, they will truly rely on who? Yahuwah. You notice that? I want you to keep that in mind. The Holy One of Israel. A remnant will return. A remnant of Jacob to the mighty God. For through your people of Israel may be like the sand of the sea, only a remnant within them will return. A destruction is determined overflowing with righteousness. And so while Yahuwah is regathering Israel and others who believe in Mashiach, right? There is going to be a remnant who will be the one to return to Yahuwah and ultimately to rule in the land of Israel to fulfill the Abrahamic covenant. So it's not all, but there's a remnant. So this pattern of a remnant of God's work persists until the end times and the latter parts of the end times. This is why what we need to do to make sure that we are part of Yahuwah God's work of restoration is to follow the clues that the prophecies reveal to us. Because the more we know the prophecies of Isaiah and Hosea and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, then we will know whether or not we are among the remnant of Israel, the remnant of God's people that are being gathered together today so that they can be added into the body or be grafted into Yahusha as divine. Okay? So we are indeed uh, past the... Uh, the Gentiles, we are indeed back now into the bringing together of Israel, which means we're very close to the end of the world. Let's go to question number three. It says in the Bible that King Yahushua uh, will be landing on the Mount of Olives in his second coming. Can you please help me reconcile Paul, while it will still be in Israel? Okay, we need to, first of all, make a distinction between the appearing of Yahushua in the clouds, right? 
and his landing on the Mount of Olives. Because when we say the second coming, it has multiple events, just like the first coming of Yahusha has multiple events. The second coming of Yahusha also has multiple events. One of the events of the second coming is the appearing of Yahusha on a cloud, right? So we, he will appear on a cloud. When he does that, we who belong to him will be taken up to the clouds to be with him forever. However, part also of the second coming is when Yahusha will return, this time not on a cloud, but, a, but riding a white horse, right? And he will land at the Mount of Olives. And that will be the day of Yahuwah, because that's when the kingdom of God will be installed upon the earth. Okay, so the question is, I'm still trying to understand the question. Can you please help me reconcile why it will still be in Israel? So he's landing on Mount of, on Mount of Olives. Why will it still be in Israel? Before we answer that question, I guess, uh, let's go first to uh, Luke 22, 39 to 42, and find out what the significance of the Mount of Olives is. Luke 22, 39 to 42, Yahusha went out as usual to the Mount of Olives. And so it turns out the Mount of Olives was his regular go-to place, right? What does he do in the Mount of Olives? Uh, on reaching the place, he said to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. And so the Mount of Olives was an important place for our king, Yahushua. Right, because he would often go there so that he can pray. In fact, one of his famous prayers right before his crucifixion in Gethsemane, what was that prayer? Not my will, but thy will be done. Right, that was in the Mount of Olives. So it's a regular place where Yahusha goes to to pray. What else? Luke 21 37 38. Each day, each day, Yahusha was teaching at the temple. And each evening, he went out to spend the night on the hill called the Mount of Olives. And all the people came early in the morning to hear him at the temple. So Yahusha would often go to the Mount of Olives to find rest in Yahuwah. What else? Luke 19, 37 to 38. When he came near the place where the road goes down, the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of Yahuwah, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Mount of Olives would also be the place where Yahusha would fulfill one of the signs mentioned in Zechariah about him being the king of Israel riding on a donkey, right? So he was fulfilling a messianic prophecy in the Mount of Olives. What else? Acts 1, 11, 12. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? The same Yahushua who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way. You have seen him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives. A Sabbath day's walk from the city. So what also is the significance of the Mount of Olives? That's where Yahushua was when he went to heaven. And the angel said to the disciples that Yahushua will come back in the same way. And so we know that Yahushua, when he comes back on a white horse, he will land on the Mount of Olives. And so when he comes back, he will rule. He will rule, right? And he will bring his army with him to install the millennial kingdom. And how far is the Mount of Olives from Jerusalem? A Sabbath day's walk. If you go to Google and you Google the distance between the Mount of Olives and Jerusalem, it's three kilometers. Mount of Olives is three kilometers from Jerusalem. So the Mount of Olives is in Israel, right? It's in Israel. And so Yahushua will land the Mount of Olives, and then he will rule. But his main place will be Jerusalem. And this is what the Mount of Olives looks like, looks like today. 
That's the landing place. Why do we know and believe that Yahusha will be landing on the Mount of Olives? Because the prophet Zechariah speaks about a messianic prophecy concerning that. Zechariah 14, 3 to 4. Then Yahuwah will go out and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. It's going to be a famous battle that will take place there in Israel. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. Whose feet is that? The feet of Mashiach, who will represent Yahuwah in this battle. East of Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, forming the Great Valley with half of the mountain moving north and half moving south. And so this is the beginning of the rulership of Yahuwah God over the whole world. And Yahusha, our king, will be the king of kings and lord of lords to rule during the millennial kingdom. Okay, So he, it, he will land at the Mount of Olives. Okay. So let's go to question number four. How could we know if we are close or already in the first half of the seven tribulation uh, of the seven year tribulation? Any signs to watch out? Great question. Matthew 24, 15, 21. Yahushua King says, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place. Whoever, re whoever reads, let him understand. For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been, been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. So our King Yahusha uh, is giving us a major sign here, right? In fact, he's, he even says, when you see. And so this sign is something that you'll be able to see. And once you see this sign... You need to go back and read the book of Daniel because Daniel explained it long ago, even before the birth of our king, Yahusha. And so he says, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken by Daniel standing in the holy place, that's a sign that the great tribulation is nigh. So let's go to Daniel. What was he talking about? Daniel 9, 27, he will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on a wing of the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. So according to the prophet Daniel, this prophecy is going to be fulfilled at the end times. As a matter of fact, the last seven years when it says seven it's referring to seven years but the seven years has a middle in other words uh the seven years of tribulation is divided into two parts the first 3.5 years and the second 3.5 years and so what will begin the seven year tribulation well it will begin by a covenant a covenant will be made by the Antichrist. We'll study this in the book of Revelation. But this, what is the purpose of this covenant? It is so that this Antichrist will rule over the world beginning in Jerusalem. This is why eventually he will stand at the holy place and he will cause the abomination that causes desolation. Where? in the temple and so what does this tell us what sign should we be looking for rebuilding of the temple right that's one sign that's why there's going to be a temple there's going to be a third temple that will be built there in jerusalem so that this covenant this prophecy can be fulfilled right but of course this temple doesn't belong to yahuwah it's a temple that will be built so that the antichrist can fulfill the prophecy and in this temple, for it to be functional, there has to be a red heifer. So we're looking for the signs, the temple being rebuilt, a red heifer. And of course, their Messiah, the Jewish Messiah. And so once all of these uh, events, these signs come into play, the Antichrist, the temple rebuilt, the red heifer, then we know that covenant is going to be instituted and we are already in the tribulation. However, 
It's really what happens in the middle that we should be really aware of because that's when he will cause or put an end to sacrifice and offering. What does that tell us? There will be, there will again be sacrifices made in that temple that will be built in Jerusalem, which is another sign because for it to be ended, it has to start again. So it will start again because of the covenant, but it will be put to an end in the middle and then the beast or the Antichrist will rule in power. And that will usher in the tribulation. The great tribulation actually takes place not in the first part, but in the second part of the seven years mentioned here by Daniel. Well, how, what, what else are the signs that we should look for? Well, we know the great tribulation is a major event, right? It's a powerful event. And there are powerful characters involved in its unfolding. This is why you can't really miss it. If you read the Bible and it happens, you will know it. You will see it. This is why we need to read the Bible all the time. So when it happens, we catch it. We become aware. We know what to do. And so there are major characters involved in the tribulation days. One of which is the Antichrist. But who also? Who also should we be watchful of? Because they will also participate in a powerful way in the unfolding of the tribulation days. Revelation 11, verse 3. And I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. So we have the Antichrist, right? But we also have who? The two witnesses. Powerful characters involved in the last days, during the tribulation days. And so we need to be aware of the two witnesses. Who are they? They are prophets of Yahuwah God. And how long will they prophesy or preach for? They will preach for 1,260 days. How long is that, by the way? 1,260 days? 3.5 years. And so these two witnesses, these two prophets, they will be prophesying or preaching. What will they preach about? What do you think? Who will they be testifying for? Yahusha, our king. Witnesses of Yahusha, our king. So we need to know that. What is the importance of knowing that? So that we can be in alignment with their work, right? So we want to be in alignment with the work of these two witnesses. Which is to witness for who? Yahusha. And to witness for Yahuwah. This is why when we study the book of Revelation, we will show you the prophecy that was fulfilled in Revelation 11, 1 to 2. We're not showing that to you now because it makes a lot of sense when we show you the first six seals or the seven seals of Revelation, one after the other. And then the six trumpets be, before the seventh trumpet blows, this after the fulfillment of the sixth trumpet, you will see Revel, Revelation chapter 11. One to two in connection with the work of these two witnesses. We'll show you that when we get to the book of Revelation. But what we need to understand now is if we're looking for signs, we're looking for the temple, right? The red heifer, the sacrifices being reinstalled in Jerusalem. We're looking for the Antichrist and we're looking for and waiting for the two witnesses, two prophets. How can we recognize them? Revelation 11, 5 to 6. And if anyone, want, if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. These have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. And they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they Desire. The Bible tells us that these two witnesses are not regular preachers, right? They're not. They're not regular proclaimers. They will proclaim with power. What kind of power? Power that produces miracles. Like what? The Bible says they have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. Does that sound familiar? Do you, do you remember a prophet who did exactly that? What's his name? Elijah. Prophet Elijah. What else? They have power over waters 
to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues. Do you, do you also remember a prophet that reminds you of that? Moses. So who are these two witnesses who will preach and testify of Messiah that will come and have a major role in the unfolding of the tribulation days? Well, I have no idea. But we know this. They will come in the spirit of Moses and Elijah. And so the characteristics of Moses and Elijah will be given to them. Whoever they may be, they will come in the spirit of Elijah and the spirit of Moses. And what will they do? They will testify of Mashiach, which is why I believe these two witnesses are the final fulfillment of Malachi for 4 down to 6. Let's read Malachi for 4 down, four down to 6. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel, with the statutes and judgments. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of Yahuwah. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. And so here's a prophecy. What is this prophecy about? It's a prophecy about what will happen prior to the return of Yahusha. In the first advent of Yahusha, how was this fulfilled? In the person and ministry of John the Baptist. But of course, that restoration was not final. How also was this fulfilled? Person and ministry of Brother Felix Y. Manalo. But also, that was not completely fulfilled. When will it be completely fulfilled? The two witnesses. This is why the Bible says the law of Moses and Elijah the prophet. And so these two witnesses will have the power of Yahuwah God that is reminiscent of the days of Moses and the days of Elijah. What further proves that these two witnesses will come in the power and spirit of Elijah and Moses? Mark 9, 2 down to 4, Yahusha gives us a clue. Now, after six days, uh, Yahusha took Peter, James, and John and led them up on a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. His clothes became shining, exceedingly white like snow, such as no launderer on earth can whiten them. And Elijah appeared to them with who? Moses. And they were talking with? Yahusha, this is a transfiguration. Yahusha's teaching his main apostles, Peter, James, and John, about the final restoration of all things. And it will involve somehow, some way, Elijah and Moses. How so? It is in their spirit and power. This is why when we, when we talk about Malachi 4, 4 down to 6, its fulfillment, really, its main fulfillment, its co final complete fulfillment is with Moses, is with the two witnesses, the two witnesses, okay? This is why, <laughs> I don't know why, but I received a lot of questions, and they're asking me, Brother John, are you the fulfillment of Elijah in Malachi 4, 4 down to 6? No, I'm not. Brothers and sisters, I'm just a Bible, I study the Bible just like the rest of you. I'm a I'm a Bible researcher. I'm a disciple of Yahusha. And I proclaim what I am learning to you. Okay? That's all I am. I'm not Elijah. I'm not Moses. Okay? It's not me. They will come, though. The spirit and power of Elijah and Moses, they will come, and they will be represented by the two witnesses. That's not me. I just wanted to point that out. Okay? It's not me. Um, just in case there are those who might be thinking it's me, it's not. It's not me. It's someone else. There are two who will come, and they will come in the power of Moses and Elijah to testify of our King Yahusha. But why do we need to know this? So that we can be in alignment with what they're going to do. And so one of the things that we need to do is to restore the Ten Commandments, the law of Moses, so that the restoration of all things can finally take place in the spirit of Elijah. Okay, so why are we sure that these two witnesses represent that spirit and power prophesied in Malachi? 
Revelation 11, 7 to 10. When they finish their testimony, these are the two witnesses, okay? The beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. Wow. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. I want to pause there for a while. Where is that great city? Or Yahushua was crucified. Where's that great city? Jeru? Jerusalem. But here the Bible calls it Sodom and Egypt. You know why? Because right now and on the day when it's going to be fulfilled, Jerusalem is not the Jerusalem of old. <laughs> Spiritually, it is Sodom and Egypt. And so the condition of Jerusalem today, it's not like the days of David. It's not like the days of uh, the prophets. It's different. And it's going to be restored because the people occupying Jerusalem today, they are not of God. They reject Messiah and they're not the ones uh, mentioned in the Bible as true Israel. This is why the Bible mentions the synagogue of Satan. We'll study that when we get to Revelation. We cannot wait to show you uh, what that represents. But for now, the great city today, Jerusalem and Israel. It's not a great city. It, it's, it's spiritually Egypt and Sodom. That's the condition as far as Yahuwah is concerned concerning Jerusalem today. Then those from the people's tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put into graves. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry, and send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. So what would happen? To these two prophets, these two witnesses of our King Yahusha, they'll be killed and they will drag their bodies and, instead of putting them into graves. But after they die, what would happen to their, to, to their bodies? Let's keep reading 11 to 14. Now, after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud and their enemies saw them. In the same hour, there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. In the earthquake, 7,000 people were killed and the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. And so what happened to the two witnesses after they were killed by the beast? Bible says, Yahuwah God breathed life into them and they resurrected. And after their resurrection, they ascended to heaven. And after this, the second woe is past. The third woe is coming quickly. And on verse 15, verse 15, take a look. Then the seventh angel sounded. What is that? The seventh trumpet. There were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. And so it follows exactly what was mentioned in Malachi 4, 4 to 6. After the function of those who will come in the spirit and power of Moses and Elijah, the Christ will come. And there will be the rapture. Bringing into Yahushua those who belong to him. And so the signs we are looking for that concern the tribulation, look at Israel. Look at the temple being rebuilt. Um, the ceremonies being installed. The red heifer and also the uh, coming antichrist. These are all events. And after that, be on the lookout for the two witnesses who will proclaim with power, the message of our King, Yahusha. Okay? All right. That is our lesson for today. Let us all stand for our prayer. Everlasting Father. Yes, Father. Most holy and almighty Yahuwah Abba. Amen. Thank you so much for your message tonight. Yes, Father. We know that you are preparing our minds and our hearts. Yes, so that we can receive the promised salvation. Help us, Father, to believe that we can remain abiding 
with our king whom you have given to us, Yahushua, your beloved son. Our king, Yahushua, we pledge our complete loyalty to you. We will follow you wherever you may lead us. Help us, despite persecution and opposition, to remain strong by your side, to cling to you by faith, and to profess you, proclaim you with love. Father, please bless your people. Help us to understand your message and to do our best to keep ourselves pure that we can receive your many promises. Father, when we pray to you, when we bring to your attention our many petitions, especially prayers concerning our loved ones, we ask you to please remember our cries. May you give us what we are asking for, especially now when we know the end is near. We know only a small remnant will be able to return completely to the land, to be part of the kingdom. Help us that we may be included. Help us that we may remain in this work of bringing people to your son. Father, please continue to bless the work of the assembly. But as we proclaim your holy words, more and more people will understand your plan and purpose for the salvation of mankind. We believe, Father, that you have listened to our prayers. For we ask and beg everything in the name of our Lord and Savior, Yahusha HaMashiach. Amen. Amen.